0: Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather as men, uh, men who are in desperate need of you. Father, more than we know, we need you. And we ask that as we look into your word, you would open up your word to us. Show us our great need for Jesus. Show us our great need for you. And show us ourselves and who we truly are in Christ. Please open our eyes and I pray that it would change and transform us. Pray that you would put in us a deeper love for yourself and for others. Help us, and I pray that this would all be a means to that great end, loving you more and loving others more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. 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 All right, so I, I want to quickly tell you who I am. Um, I, I grew up in the church Ever since I was um, an infant, like, my mom had me the next week I was in church. I was in church Sunday mornings. I was in church Sunday nights. I was in church Wednesday nights for youth group. Is that anyone's experience? Just church, 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 week in and week out. When I was about uh, 12 years old, I I left the Lord. I started to pursue the world. I began to sell drugs. I began to pursue uh, an immoral lifestyle, and I had a passion for sin. I mean a passion. I pursued it. I loved it. I enjoyed it. It took up all of my time and energy. And when I thought about Jesus, all I thought about was judgment. There was just a fear that was connected to Jesus. And when I was um, 17, I got busted um, selling marijuana. It's, it's less of a criminal offense now. But then it was serious, and the, the narcotics detectives came in my house while I was at school, and they raided my my room and took all of my money and my paraphernalia and, and the, the drugs that I had there. And I spent two weeks in Schumann, and I prayed for the first time in Schumann, 17 years old, and I hadn't prayed in years. And my prayer was, God, get me out of here. Um, and that began a road in which God began to draw me back to himself, and I became a Christian at age 19. Though I confessed Christ as a child... I prayed the the sinner's prayer, if you will, but I was not born again. I did not know God. I knew about God, and there's a big difference. And God grabbed me, and now I know God, and I'm known by Him. And in about 2008, God began to call me uh, to plant a church, to start a church. And so in 2014, we started a church in my living room, with the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. And we spent about a year in my living room just packing people in there every Sunday all throughout the week. And we are now meeting in a building in Wilkinsburg. It's in Pittsburgh, right outside the city. And we meet there on Sunday evenings for worship. And we're all about making disciples who make disciples. And so I'm here. and It's a privilege to speak to you brothers this morning. And I want to talk to you about four things this morning. Okay? Four things. One... (coughs) Finding or rooting our identities in God. Okay, that's the main thing I want to talk about. But in that kind of flavor, I want to talk about three major temptations that men face. Three major temptations men face and how to fight. Okay, so the first major temptation I want to talk to you about is that we are tempted to find or root our identities in something other than God. Number two temptation, neglecting the most important relationships, plural, in our lives. And number three temptation is neglecting the most singular important relationships in our lives and how to fight. I'm going to spend most time on the first, I'm going to spend less time on the second, and even less time on the third. Okay, let's start. Temptation number one, finding or rooting our identity in something other than God. What is identity? Identity is the who you are question. Who am I? In fact, we sang it. I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. That's a healthy identity. Being loved by God, if that's the center of your reality, that's a healthy identity. So what is it? It's it, what's... What makes you valuable? What gives you worth? What gives you significance? What gives you a sense of self? Or what gives you weight? Why do you matter? That's identity. Okay? And we're all tempted to place or root our identity in something other than God. So what would be some of those things that we root our identity. And I want you to listen to this list and see where you might find yourself. Where might you be rooting your identity in something other than God? Approval. You find your sense of self-worth in those who respect you. Maybe family, bosses, coworkers, peers, friends. How about achievements? Look at all I've done with my life Look at what I've been able to achieve. How about relationships? How much money you have? Your skill set? Where you went to school? How many degrees you have? Where you work? How hard you work? So your work ethic. Where you live? Your zip code? What you drive? What you wear? Your political party? Your political positions? Your ethnicity? Your girlfriend, wife, family? Your physical appearance or body shape? Your intelligence level, your IQ. Any ministry men in the room? No men in ministry? One guy, two? Okay. So for you brothers, um, we tend to sometimes root our identity in things like our theological tribe, our theological distinctives, how well our sermon went, how many people are attending our churches, what's the budget like, how many people came up and said, man, that was a great message. And we root our identity in these things. And our, listen, our sense of worth fluctuates, it rises and falls because all of these things that I had just mentioned are very temporal and very transient. And some of you who've lost jobs, you know that if your job is your identity, your job could get lost in a second. And if your job was what gave you worth, value, meaning, all of a sudden you've lost yourself. It's very dangerous for us as men to root our identities in anything else but God. Now, me personally, I tend to root my identity in what I'm doing. So I am whatever I'm doing and how successful whatever I'm doing is. And so if what I'm doing, what I'm pouring my life and energy into, if it's going well, I'm up. I have a sense of self, I have a sense of worth, I have a sense of value. But if whatever I'm doing is not going so well, I'm depressed, I'm down, I don't want to get up in the morning. So you get the idea. Now, none of what I mentioned in that above paragraph are bad things, right? None of those are bad things. Good relationships, ministry, work, talents, where you went to school, these are all good things, but listen, they can't be ultimate things. Whenever any of these things rises to the ultimate thing, that's when we're in trouble. When they become the main thing of why I matter, that's when we're in trouble, because they can be taken, they can be lost, they're transient. Now, our culture, the American culture, has fed us that we need to achieve an identity, and we need to discover an identity. We need to create one for ourselves. It's, it's the air we breathe. And so for some of you, what I'm saying doesn't sound like, what's wrong with that? Right? Because that's the air you've been breathing your whole life. We, we you know, we create our own destinies. We're the, we're the masters of our fate, the captains of our own souls. And we need to blaze a path for ourselves and make a name for ourselves. And that's all achievement identity. You determine your worth. You determine your value. We've been being shaped like this since we were children. How many of you have daughters in the room, young daughters? Okay, so you're familiar with the newest Disney princess, Moana. And now some of you men are saying, I can't even escape Disney princesses at a men's breakfast. No, you can't, brothers. No, you can't. And I bring this illustration up because... This is how our kids are being shaped, and this is how we have been shaped since we were kids. In, in, in this newest Disney movie, Moana, she is on this quest to restore the heart of this life-giving goddess. Um, and she's in the ocean, and it's a low point in the movie, and she sings this song. Now listen for the identity here. I'm a girl who loves my island. The girl who loves the sea It calls me. I am, that's identity language, I am. I am the daughter of the village chief. We are descended from voyagers who found their way across the world. They call me. Now, her I am there is showing she's rooted in her parents, her tribe, and her people, her ancestry. That's all identity. Where do you find a sense of self? Well, I'm Irish-American. I'm Italian-American, I'm African-American, and we find identity in our ancestry or our parents. My parents define me. I just delivered us to where we are. She's in a quest in the middle of the ocean singing this song, okay? I've delivered us to where we are. I have journeyed farther, farther, I am everything I've learned and more, still it calls me. So her achievements at this point, I've delivered us where we are. We'll look at what I've done. I've journeyed farther than anyone else that I know has journeyed. That makes me valuable because I'm going further than everyone else. And I am everything I've learned and more education. Still, it calls me, and that's this quest inside of her. And the call isn't out there at all. It's inside me. It's like the tide always falling and rising. I will carry you here in my heart. You'll remind me that come what may, I know the way. I am Moana, the Disney princess. But see, the idea here is this is what we're getting as kids. You are your family. You are the quest that you uh, are set out upon for us as Americans, we discover our own identity. We create it. Right? What, realize your dreams, realize your passions, and create your own identity. Um, Tim Keller is a uh, a pastor, theologian, and author that I respect, and he says this: We cannot achieve our identity. Our identity must be received. Any identity that is achieved will fail you, but an identity that can be received will not fail you. We're going to talk about received identity in just a moment. But here's the main problem, brothers. This is the main problem with achieving your identity it's rooted in pride. Now, for some of us, especially Americans, we're like, what's wrong with pride? American pride. In our culture, pride is a value. But the Bible has a lot of negative things to say about pride. In fact, if you know anything about our archenemy, Satan, it was pride that was the first sin that got him kicked out of heaven. That's why Augustine, the early church father, said that pride is the mother of all sins that birth every other sin. Here's C.S. Lewis on pride. Pride is the essential vice. The utmost evil. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. Every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Seriously? Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind? If that's true, what about the American highest value of pride? If C.S. Lewis is right, that means that it is the complete anti-God state of mind. Let that sink in. Lewis continues. Each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Now you're going to see this at work, you're going to see this in your home. As soon as I describe this, you're going to be like, "Oh. It is because I want to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Two of a trade never agree. You ever see two bosses who have the same line of work get in an argument with each other because each one knows the exact right thing to do? I mean, it's it's rooted in pride. Now, what you want to get clear is that, I'm still quoting Lewis, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. Pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it Than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride has gone. That is why I say pride is essentially competitive in a way that other vices are not. The sexual impulse may drive two men into competition if they both want the same girl, but that is only by accident. They must just as likely have wanted two different girls. But a proud man will take your girl from you, not because he wants her, but just to prove to himself that he is a better man than you. Greed may drive men into competition if there is not enough to go around. But the proud man, even when he has got more than he can possibly want, will try to get more just to assert his power. Nearly all those evils in the world which people put down uh, to greed or selfishness are really the result of pride. When we achieve our identity, it's rooted in pride. It cannot be otherwise. And if Lewis is right that pride is the worst of all sins in comparison to others, then we need to figure out how we can receive our identity, not achieve it. Now, God was certainly involved in my preparations here because we didn't talk about what available resources would be there on the back. But as I picked up the book that's free from the Alliance uh, Church back there, listen, this is Tony Dungy. Listen to the back of this. There are many competing answers to this question. What's the question? What is the path to significance? What makes you significance is, is your identity. Money, power, status, these are how the world tells us we matter. And men are often the casualties of these wrong answers. But Super Bowl winner and former head coach Tony Dungy suggests a different path to significance, an uncommon path. It's a way of life that values others first and emphasizes who people are over what they have or accomplish. This book's free for you on the back there. I haven't read it, but Tony Dungy's good, and I have talked to people who have read his stuff, and they had nothing bad to say about him. So what about your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your intellect, your family, what you have Where did it all come from? Did you, by your hard work and effort and energy, did you make it happen? Really? Well, the Bible has something to say about that. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, one of my favorite passages. Paul says to the Corinthians that, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Whatever, whatever gifts and talents you have, whatever uh, status you have, whatever degrees you have, whatever position you have, wherever you live, whatever you're driving, it's all gift. Do you realize that Acts 17, Paul speaking to the uh, philosophers on Mars Hill, he says that God determines the exact times and places where men should live. Exact times and places so that they might reach out and find him. That means that if God wanted, you could have been born four centuries ago in Northern Korea. And where would your schooling be? Where would your success be? Where would your achievements be then? You see, the very time and place that we live, the very family we're born in, is all of God's doing. What do we have that we did not receive? And if we received it, why are we boasting like we didn't? You see, when we have an achievement identity, we're going to be very prideful people and we're going to look down on other people. We can't help but do that. It's the essence of pride. Look at all that I've accomplished. So, so here's one example. If you get your identity from how hard of a worker you are, I'm a... I get up every morning, I go to work, I work harder than everybody else. You cannot help but look down on other people who are lazy. Lazy bums, good for nothing, they're worth nothing. You have to. It's your only option. If you, if you get your identity from being a Republican, and I know who I'm talking to this morning, okay, you will look down on liberals and you will look down on... Democrats and they will be the problem with everything. You have to, if it's your main identity. (laughs) Which, what were you amending there, brother? (laughs) See, if your main identity is not received but achieved, you will demonize others rather than love them which is the second greatest command. When when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment he said to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. And if we're looking down on everybody that's not loving them. But yet that's the second greatest command. When our identity is received then we will have the power to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself, regardless of their work ethic, their political party, where they live, what they have achieved, what they haven't achieved. You can love them regardless of their capacities. Okay, let's keep going. James 1, 16 and 17. James is Jesus' brother, and he says this, "'Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers,' every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. This is called common grace. This means that God casts his gifts abroad to all humanity without showing respect of persons. He just Gives gifts. So if you have a musical talent this morning, or you have a construction talent this morning, or you're a coder this morning, or you're a, uh, an artist, whatever gifts you have. Some of you are fantastic with, with drills and saws and tape measures. And others of us, we better not touch those things. Okay? Why is that? Because God has given you these gifts. So I need you, I need me to see that Whether I'm speaking clearly and you're receiving it, that's a gift from God. Or if you're measuring and creating a barn like this and you have that capacity, it's a gift from God. He casts his gifts across to all humanity. That's James 1, 16 and 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Again, received. Now how do I know that one of the main temptations that we will face is to root our identity in something other than God. Well, because that's what Satan did to our first parents. You're familiar with the Genesis account, and in Genesis 1:27 we're told this that God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him male and female he created them. So we as human beings are the only creatures made in God's image, like Him. Theologian Wayne Grudem says that to be made in God's image is to be like God in every respect that a human being can be like God. Angels aren't made in God's image, only human beings are. And you remember the story, Satan comes into the garden and he speaks to Eve. And the temptation is to take the fruit, but... The promise in the fruit is this. Listen. The serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. God said, You eat from the tree, you'll die. He says, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Now what should have entered her mind right there was, Wait a minute, I'm already like God. I'm made in his image. Satan is getting Eve to doubt her identity rooted in God and rather create her own identity, achieve it, and be like God that way. But yet she was already like God. It was given to her. She was made in God's image. And if that's not enough proof, let's think about Jesus. When Jesus is baptized and The Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And he immediately is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days by the devil. When the devil tempts Jesus, he always starts with this. Matthew 4, 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God. That's identity. Okay, if you're the Son of God, then... Do this. Second temptation, Matthew 4, 6. And said to him, the devil, if you are the son of God. See, he's trying to get Jesus to doubt who he is. And Jesus' identity is the unique and only son of God. If if he tempted our first parents that way, and he tempted Jesus that way, you don't think you're going to be tempted that way? We're being tempted this way all the time to find our identity in something that we've done or that we have an achieved identity. Okay, number two, neglecting the most important relationships in your life. Now, this number one flows into number two because we will spend so much time, effort, and energy trying to achieve an identity that we will neglect the most important relationships in our lives. If you brothers are married, your wife is the most important relationship in your life. You don't have to ask any questions. That's how God sees it. And how God sees it, he gets to create reality. And listen, in Ephesians 5.25, we get this. husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We husbands need to love our wives like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up. He sacrificed himself for her sake. And if you're trying to achieve your identity, you will sacrifice yourself for your identity's sake, not your wife. And you will neglect this most important relationship that God has given you. It's a gift. And so, when we get our identity right, we can then begin to serve our wives in the way that we're supposed to, which is die for her, living and dying for her at the same time. And brothers, listen, if your wife sees you as willing to live for her by dying for her, she's going to respond to that because she was made to. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This points to the husband's responsibility to wash his wife with the word. Now, that's a weird language. All it means is we need to be regularly going through the scriptures with our wives. And for some of us, that's really weird. You're like, I don't know if I can do that. You can do that. You can ask God for help, and you can simply open up a good book. I'm sure there's many brothers in this room who are leaders and pastors, and um, they will help you to walk through the simplicity of opening up the Bible and reading it with your wife. Number two, the relationship is your kids. If you have kids... Second to your wife, your kids are the next most important relationship in your life. And if you're trying to achieve your identity, you will neglect your kids. They might be in the way of what you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to do. But listen, if if your identity is received, you can then love your wife and love your children. Listen, we as Christians, I'm talking to Christians right now, we are to be pouring into our children So that they are loving Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, 7 and 9. You shall teach them diligently. This is the ways of the Lord. Okay, The scriptures. Teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit at your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets on your eyes, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates, and the idea is that we should be constantly talking about God and the Christian worldview to our children, but listen, if we're out there spending all our time, effort, and energy trying to achieve a sense of self, we're going to neglect this great command to pour into our children so that they might see that God has made all things and that he has for them himself the greatest gift that any of us could receive. And then, thirdly, we will neglect the relationships of our church. I think every Christian should be connected to a local church. I don't think there is such a thing as individualistic Christians disconnected from a local body. Now, I am a a lead pastor of a church, so I may be biased. However, I think that every Christian needs to be connected to a local church because you're not going to survive by yourself. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us, In verse 10, I'm sorry, chapter 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So we need to consider, that means think. Let's think about how we can push one another towards loving each other and towards good works. Let's think about how to do that. And then he says this. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more... As you see the day drawing near. The day would be the great judgment day that is coming. Okay? And though this passage I think does apply to us attending church gatherings, it also means you gathering with Christian brothers and sisters regularly, over coffee, in small groups, in one-on-one Bible reading situations, in two-on-three situations. You you should be constantly investing in relationships with other Christians and if you're out trying to achieve an identity when are you gonna have time for that now I'm not saying we don't work I'm not saying that we don't um, do what God has given us to do as far as responsibilities go but listen if God has given you a wife she is a high priority if God has given you children they are a high priority if you are a Christian. You are to be in loving relationships with other Christians. You cannot survive on your own as an individualistic Christian. Just me and God. God designed you for community. And that community is best achieved in a local church. With other brothers who are going to consider how to stir you on to love and good deeds. Alright, and quickly... Let's go to the um, third temptation. First one, trying to root your identity in something other than God. Number two was neglecting the most important relationships in your life. Number three, neglecting the most important singular relationship in your life. Well, we've already said it the greatest command that Jesus gave us is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we're out trying to achieve a sense of worth and self, that means we're not receiving it from God. It means we're trying to make it happen on our own rather than receiving it as a gift. Now, Jesus Christ was a very secure man. He found his identity in his relationship with his father. In fact, you remember um, the baptism that we already spoke of uh, when John, his cousin, baptizes him in the river. The father speaks from heaven, and he speaks a word of, I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, you remember the story Jesus goes up onto the mountain, and Peter, James, and John are with him. And Jesus becomes like light. His glory breaks through his humanity. And a voice comes. It's the Father. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Jesus knew who He was. He was God's unique Son, and He found His sense of worth and His sense of self from his relationship with his father, in fact, jesus in john um, fifteen he said this john fifteen nineteen truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise you see jesus was so in step with his father that he didn't say anything, he didn't hear the father saying, he didn't do anything, he didn't see the father doing. He said, I and the father are one. In fact, when his one disciple, I believe it was Philip, said, show us the father, he said, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? I and the father are one. Now, Jesus didn't say, I am the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. His mission is my mission. His goals are my goals. What he says, I will say. We have nothing in competition. I am fully about my Father's will. Jesus said this. This is amazing. I always live to please the Father. That's amazing. So Jesus had this secure relationship with his Father. And we know from John 17, John is um, giving us insight into this prayer that Jesus prayed. It's one of the deepest places in the Bible you can go. John 17, Jesus is praying to his Father. And he says, Father, restore to me the glory I had with you before the world began. And then he tells us what eternal life is. John 17, 3, he says, This is eternal life, that we may know you in Jesus Christ, the one whom you've sent. So this is eternal life. It's to know God the Father. It's to know Jesus Christ. We often think of eternal life as um, life that never ends, and that is an aspect of it. But when Jesus defines eternal life, he says it's to know God to have a relationship with Him. And here's the beauty. When Jesus went to the cross, this is is the heart of Christianity. Jesus on the cross is suffering for sins, not His sins, but rather the sins of all those who would ever trust in Him. And on the cross, He calls out to God, but for the first time, I would argue, in all of eternity past, he doesn't call God his father. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a sense, Jesus lost the father so that you and I could gain the father. That's deep. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was under the active wrath of God for sins, all the sins of all those who would ever trust in Him. And that wrath of God being poured out on Jesus in our place as a substitute, Jesus lost the Father in a sense so that you and I could gain the Father, so that we could receive an identity As sons of God, what matters most to you as a Christian? I'm a son of God. So if I walked up to you and shook your hand and rather said, hey, I'm Chris, um, what do you do? If I walked up to you and said, hey, I'm Chris, who are you? A healthy identity that is received would say, I'm a son of God. It's the most significant thing about you. It's what defines you. It's what gives you weight. It's why you matter. But better than that, there's a positive aspect to the cross too. You see, Jesus as our substitute not only pays the penalty for the sins of all those who will place their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins, but then he also gives us his perfect pleasing of the Father that I always live to please the Father, he gives that to you as a gift. Now listen, it's as if you've always lived to please the Father. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we're in Christ. I think it's mentioned seven or eight times in the first chapter. And what that means is when we're united to Jesus, everything that's true of him is now true of us. So that voice that came from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, I tell myself that. I, I repeat that to myself, I am God's beloved Son in whom He's well pleased, not because of how I'm doing, but because of how Jesus did in my place. God is well pleased with me, not because of how I'm doing, but because of how Jesus did in my place. Jesus said, "I didn't come to destroy the law, but to what? Fulfill it for us. We fulfill the law in Christ. We don't have to perform to earn God's favor. We have it in Christ. We just receive. See, that's the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ is that it's all been done for us. Ray Ortlund Jr., one of my favorite pastors, he said this, who Jesus is is more important to who you are Than who you are. Let me say that again. Who Jesus is is more important to who you are than who you are. That's a healthy identity. So when you think about yourself, do you think, oh, I'm doing really poorly, God must be really upset at me? Or do you think, no, Jesus performed perfectly in my place and his perfection is given to me as a gift? That's the gospel. And that's how we fight, brothers. We fight by reminding ourselves of these great gospel truths. That our identity is not rooted in how we're doing or how we're performing or what's going on in our lives that's positive or negative. We have all we need in Christ. And because I'm now free from judgment, I can go out and love you without fear of your judgment. Because even if you judge me, the verdict's already in for me. I'm well-pleased. God is well-pleased with me, so it doesn't matter if you're well-pleased with me. The verdict's in that I'm righteous, so I can attempt things that I might fail. I'm free now, because I'm in Christ, to perform, not to be accepted, but because I already am. That's a healthy identity, and it can only be received. It can't be achieved. So I'm going to pray. And I'm just going to highly encourage you, brothers, that if you're not connected to a local church, please, that's your next step. Okay? Your first step is receiving Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He paid for all of your sins on the cross. Will you ask him to forgive you? Will you turn your life over to him? And if you've done that, you need to get connected to a local church so you can begin to grow. You can begin to not only be discipled, but then make disciples. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great grace. We thank you for Jesus in our place. Father, we thank you that we don't have to achieve an identity. We don't have to to achieve a sense of self and worth. Our value is in Christ. Father, we are defined by being your children. And this is all gift. Father, I pray for each brother in here that you would show them that uh, they can find their truest sense of self in you and united to Christ, brought into the very relationship of the triune God. And I pray that that's what would define us, that we are sons of the living God, well-pleased in your sight, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. We thank you, we love you, help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. 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 Thank you, brothers.